love, for the record, uh, all of the Matt uh, Poopman jokes. I don't know. Uh, what is this? What is this? A parent. What is this? No, what is this? Show them this. Rub it. No, go fucking put your fucking television screen. Show them that. He fucking won. I said it for fucking weeks, and he fucking won. You didn't believe me. None of you fucking believe me. For weeks, you sent me a fucking poop emoji. You sent me a hand emoji pointing to the poop emoji. You fucking Philistines. None of you fucking listen to me. You didn't fucking care. You fucking imbecile. Instead, you know what you listen to? You know what you listen to? You listen to this fucking frog. You listen to Matt Christman. You listen to this pusillanimous Pied Piper of Poland. You listen to this cartoon of turnout. And look where it got you. I was right. I was right from day fucking one. And he was wrong. You want to keep sending me the boob emoji? By all means. You should send it to him because he's touching it. He is touching it. He is reading the book. He is going to get toxoplasmosis. And I was right. I was right. I was right. I gave the sensible analysis that made sense. That was based on data. It was based on rational assertions. And everyone said, well, I wish you'd be right, but I'm Alabama. I'm going to touch it. You're going to touch the poop. Well, I was right. I was right. I was right. I was right. All right. So that's it, guys. I got owned. You got uh, owned. I got owned. You got owned. You got owned. Every single person said, uh, well, I'm sorry, Virgil, but Matt's right, and you're going to touch the poo. Uh, I know you have data analysis. I know that you are an intelligent human being who understands things. I know that you are the most intelligent member of Chabo Trap House who has followed elections and clearly knows the most, but uh, Matt's actually going to win it because uh, Matt has a beard and is a fucking big, fat, Midwestern asshole fucking guy. Well, you put your money on that. You fucking imbeciles. You swine. Fuck you. Fuck all of you. Go to hell. Never bet against a gamer. Never bet against a diva main. <laughs> Hello, friends. It's your Chapo for the middle of the week. It's your premium Chapo. In just a little bit, we'll be talking to Ryan Cooper and Matt Brunig about their new policy paper. But before that, we're going straight right now, live to Virgil, Texas's somber, restrained, and respectful victory lap. For weeks, weeks. for weeks, I suffered abuse. <laughs> Just untold amounts of online harassment from listeners of this podcast. Speak was, on it. I was sent the poop emoji, which is a threat, and I was sent <laughs> a hand emoji indicating that the poop would be touched. I would write my analysis in the newsletter. I would give my reasoned 
data-driven analysis of the campaign, of where it stands, of probabilities. I would give it here. I would give it in the newsletter. I would tweet about it. And instead, I, I would just be harassed. That, would, that was the response I received. And all the while, my esteemed colleague, Mr. Christman, would sit back in his his lazy boy watching from his from his mansion watching the stream watching his colleagues suffer the stream of invective uh, the a whole time upon his lap the whole time smug and confident in his belief in his own inerrancy i was right i was right the whole time and i never wavered i was right i was right i was right I was right. This is a victory for both Virgil and the American people. To the forgotten men and women out there, for too long you haven't had a voice. This is your voice, Virgil, Texas. I'm just imagining Matt on his uh, rocking chair with like a corncob pipe, just like, you know, just puffing away, laughing, like Struther Martin and and Cool Hand Luke (laughs) as Virgil is... Put in a hot box. I'm so confident to the point where they changed uh, the title of a group DM that I'm in. And just to harass me, they changed the title to Virgil Touches Poop. And I insisted time and time again, even though betters on predicted only gave Jones a 20% chance to win, even though poll after poll after shoddy poll came out showing, oh, Roy Moore, 10-point lead. Even after that, I would insist, uh, actually, I'm not going to be the one touching the poop. And everyone would laugh at me. So, Virgil, you, so- you stood strong. Mm-hmm. You know, very Christ-like almost. Um, what what gave you the strength? What what, what was your reasoning? What, what did you see that others didn't? I mean, basically, uh, first off, you'd have to disregard most of those polls. Most of those were just shoddy, shitty polls in Alabama. And SurveyMonkey was the only one, I, I believe it was SurveyMonkey, was the only one that came out and said, you know, we don't actually know who's going to show up. It's it's we we are likely voter models are all over the place. Our weighting is all over the place. You can pick whichever number you like. Me, I, I just looked at the racial composition of the state and the partisan breakdown of the state and the number of – but what it rested on was the number of Republican voters who would not vote for more under any circumstances. And obviously in 2016, a lot of these, a lot of these, these so-called suburban voters that Hillary went so hard for, they just, they just voted for Trump anyway or they just didn't vote. But in Alabama in particular, and this was backed up by anecdotal evidence by some of the wonderful people from the from the great state of Alabama that I've spoken to throughout this whole campaign who said, you know, I, I live in this very Republican cult area, this Republican cul-de-sac, and I see Jones signs everywhere. I know that, you know, these these suburban white Republican women are not just not going to vote for more. They are actually going to vote for Jones at just enough of a percentage to put him over the finish line. That and the uh, exceptional turnout that we saw in Virginia, we've seen special elections of the traditional Democratic coalition, especially black voters in Alabama who came out, uh, I believe the exit poll said, at, 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 at higher rates than they did for Obama. Whites who usually love voting, Roy Moore was Mr. Too Damn Pedophile and they couldn't do it. And so there was well, a dilute- I mean, for just a, enough of them. Just, for most of them, it was fine. It was yeah. for just most, enough. Yeah. He was enough of a pedophile. It was right. okay. And they already hated him. But interestingly enough, more lost. I mean, everyone posted the things where they're like, uh, you know, it's the, they do the racial breakdown and every white liberal is like uh, just going up to any person they see with a tan today and going, thank you, Mr. POC, for stopping Roy Moore. And the person goes, what the fuck did you call me? <laughs> Uh, they're like, you know, God is a black woman. We're going to continue to do nothing for them politically anyway. But uh, they pointed out the white woman statistic. But if you take away, you break down the like 
huge split of white women who voted for Roy Moore. If you take away evangelical white women, they went like 70-30 for Jones. And the most important thing is just they didn't show up. And in technical terms, we got a lot of VOCs, votes of color. <laughs> and uh, in the home stretch on the last day, a lot of people tried to scare me off at long last by saying, you know what, even if you're right, Moore's just going to win through fraud or vote suppression. Well, I saw through it. And interestingly, if you watched my triumphal uh Periscope stream with Matt last night, our Chapo election night live roundtable drunken apartment TV with no Matt was actually at the Javits Center. (laughs) (laughs) If you watch that, uh, you can see the look on Matt's face as one, he realizes that Jones is going to win, and two, when he when when you can watch him uh, go through all those stages of grief and get to bargaining, says, "Well, actually, you know what? There could be a recount, and they're just going to throw those votes out. You know, they're just going to do massive voter fraud." And I think I think it'll put a smile on your face to realize that. The MAGA people now, and of course, friend of the show, uh, uh, what's his name? Bill, Bill, Bill Mitchell. Mitchell. Bill Mitchell. Bill Mitchell. Uh, they are now saying, oh, you, that, this was a rigged election. Buses and buses of illegals have got it. <laughs> and they're now pointing to that lawsuit, that stupid. Um, the Chalice sh- thing. Yeah, the Greg, the stupid you know, non story, the Greg Palace, like uh, 25th hour uh, lawsuit on the eve of the election. And they're saying, oh, what the things that all the libs were saying were was that uh, was evidence that this is going to be rigged in Moore's favor. They are now saying that's evidence that it was rigged in Jones's favor. Uh, by, again, by the six Democrats in the state of Alabama, they yes. got together to rig the vote. The best one I saw it was a four chan post, and he was like, "You fucking idiots! You don't realize Roy Moore was always going to lose." But now you're going to see why the attorney general is Jeffrey Beauregard motherfucking Sessions, because it was part of the long game to expose the Democratic machine. <laughs> Those are the Obama like a boss guys for people. It's yeah. an entrapment. They yeah. have a special election yeah. to entrap to get Doug Jones. We got him. We got this guy. <laughs> you don't get it when you when you pull the cover on Doug Jones. It reveals the entire Democratic machine from. Joe Trippy to Mark Ruffalo, <laughs> all the big wheels down at the crack. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, this is payback for prosecuting I, the Klan. I think yeah. I, the funniest thing I could I see though is anybody trying to draw any sort of conclusions from this race for future races because all of it boils down to people saying like Hillary saying we won in Alabama, we can win anywhere. If you run against an obvious fucking pedophile that the entire that's state already be, hated that's gonna be the, the dnc's new tactic that's gonna have Only to be running it. against pedophiles. they're gonna be doing <laughs> yeah, they're gonna sorry. have to be they're gonna like hire chris hansen to try to like honeypot <laughs> as many republican politicians as possible into showing up with mike's hard lemonade and condoms way, at a house they never 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 have to like put forth a progressive politician ever they just have to like you know yeah, they just got yeah. to hunt Because, like, half of them probably are. Oh, yeah, no. You just got to yeah. get yeah. them exposed. <laughs> Look, according to Elite Daily, people who procrastinate, drink too much, swear, and are pedophiles are always successful. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Democratic Party is hoping the uh, RNC will relocate its headquarters to the McMartin Preschool and uh, furnish all future candidates <laughs> from there. Here's my impression of the Republican GOP fu- uh, candidate from uh, Palm Beach in the future. Whoa, good. Easy on the candy. 
<laughs> they, uh, so, I mean, the only two real tea leaves that I read here that are relevant going into 2018 are one, obviously, and we saw this in Virginia too, Democrats, I mean, center and everyone to the left are very enthusiastic about coming out to vote. There's not going to be an enthusiasm gap there. And number two, and, and I mean, this, this one is, you know, pretty tautological, but uh, Democrats are probably favored to win the Senate now. I mean, that's they just need to win two seats and three seats was considered impossible a few months ago. I yeah, think, I think like, up to four is possible. Right after the election, people were wondering about people like Tammy Baldwin and Stabenow in states in the Rust Belt that are up for re-election in 18, who states went for Trump. And yeah, I mean, he's less popular there than almost anywhere. So that's he not was really a danger anymore. an effective... Anymore. Zero percent uh, approval, net zero percent approval rating in fucking Alabama. Among the people who voted, yeah, yeah. that's people pretty crazy. Voted, right, and yeah. the overall, you know, the overall um, registered voters in Alabama, they 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 give Trump a positive approval rating that's re- relatively high compared to the rest of the country. But and that just goes to show you who is showing up to vote in these things. Now, you know, you said you're reading the tea leaves, hard to project out. But now this is now this is the second bet that's taking place on our show between. Virgil and Matt. And Matt, you have been betting on, I'm sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? Hell world? Yeah. That's what we have to say now? <laughs> yes. Hell world? Yeah. You, to avoid uh, litigation. Uh, yes. Fucking lawyers. We've been approached. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to avoid any uh, any misunderstandings yeah. going forward yeah. and just say uh, hell world. So, yes. I've just been betting on everything getting stupider and more absurd all the time. And you know what? And you've lost your shirt. I guess, but come on. Don't put it back. Two thirds <laughs> of the white people who voted in in Alabama voted for a guy who is basically the worst human being on earth oh, and yeah. also a pedophile. Yes, it's human policy is more important than personality. <laughs> Why is that bad? <laughs> and he would have won if he just hadn't been a pedophile. Oh yeah. This fucking oh, yeah. cowboy boot filled with bacon grease <laughs> this monstrous just a person whose entire public career has been nothing but stoking hatred and vile religious tinged mania this snake handling psychopath with his little root beer vest and his little pea shooter that he was going to use to mur- personally murder Keith Ellison the day he got fucking sworn in would have won if he'd not tried to date teenagers. That's why I make fun of uh, all well, the. Well, he would have won against his opponent, who was shit. He would have won anybody. Alabama, I'm, no, Alabama's not. To I don't, the, think, I don't so. think so. No, I think there are people that could have done. I mean, I'm under no illusions that just like any Bernie crowd could have beaten him, but. I think someone with like a little more charisma than Jones. Someone. Are who, you saying that Jones was not charismatic? That soft chin. Yeah. That he looks like Toby old age makeup. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I made fun of the libs who ins- who spent the past few days insisting Alabama, you're better than this. Oh, hold on, I saw the best tweet. I saw the best tweet when it became clear Jones was going to win. It was. You all laughed at John Ossoff. <laughs> <laughs> now we're coming well, for you. Uh, well, I mean, that, well, I, 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 I want to be clear when I say that I am referring to the white ruling majority of Alabama, which is very obviously transparently so, not better. It's worse than this, it, right? It, 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 it I want it worse than if I, there was someone worse than Roy Moore, they would have voted for him. If it was a swat, if it was a Roomba that only went into dressing rooms at Forever Twenty One that had a swastika on it, they would have voted for genuinely it. Genuinely curious, which is also, by the way, the uh, Prime Minister of Ukraine at the moment. I'm genuinely. <laughs> curious what kind of republican it would take to lose a majority of white alabamans and i i don't think there is one no frankly. it's not it's impossible they are committed to it they're committed to their the racial case system and they think that uh, 
that the Republicans will uphold it for them. And sadly, that's what's matter sadly, for them. not enough are committed to that racial case system, as we saw this week. Yeah, if it's not be- if it's being administered by a guy who might try to date their middle schooler, that's the one deal breaker that for some of them. them. I was them. I, I was disappointed. I saw a breakdown that showed with, among evangelicals, parents still the, broke for more, and it's like. Did you guys mean those T-shirts at all? Your <laughs> daughters, God, it's almost as though well, they, no, they, they did mean mean those T-shirts because Roy Moore followed all of those rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's true. All those stories, that, yeah. he really did have sort of a courtly ritual to the whole thing when he would take girls out of their trig classes. To <laughs> <ask> <laughs> them out. Could I interest you in some pop rocks, milady? He would like he, it, he's a guy like Trent Franks, the guy who just oh, resigned. <laughs> this like yeah. this this type of weird. Republican old timey sex predatorness. I mean, where you show like- up in like the candy coated, uh, the candy striped uh, uh, suit with a, a heart shaped box of chocolates and a straw boater, and yeah. you sing a song to her. I would love to dance and on she's a black 12. hole in front of you. The <laughs> history of the dance wasn't so twinged in African American culture. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, but he did like sexually assault a bunch of people too, right? Like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. But in a very courtly manner, in yeah. a very a old Southern manner. Just totally denied it too. Yeah, they yeah. were just like that. None of that happened. Well, and I believe that they believe that. Oh, absolutely. Too. Yeah, but they hundred percent too. It's like they have no faith in the media because they think it all has an agenda. The only people telling them that this happened are people who are part of this media that they don't trust so what would what would persuade them to go against their their uh affinity for this guy who they think is one of them for some outsiders no, it's never uh, gonna happen uh, no, i you have to be cautious with these breakdowns because you can't really extrapolate them into larger data numbers but one eggs one um Final exit poll had something like eight percent of more voters believe the allegations, which I want them. <laughs> those are the real motherfuckers. Yeah, those are the real, real soldiers. Ride or die, homies. Here, here are the two best groups of people: <laughs> the three percent of Hillary voters who think she did Pizzagate, and those eight percent of Roy, more yeah, voters. Yeah, yeah. That's the real as, no label. They're committed. They're yeah. either ride as, or die. As, yeah. as I think Carl Bayer pointed out, like that eight percent. That's like a hundred thousand people. If you can extrapolate <laughs> like that, yes, that's a hundred thousand cool people. A hundred thousand potential new best friends and um, subscribers. And, you know, like, you know. Let, let, let's use the opportunity to, to talk about him now. Hopefully, we'll never ever hear from him again. This, this. Uh, hopefully, he'll kill over and die. The Lord will take him he back was, tomorrow because. Transparently, I mean, one of the most evil people who's ever even... He was like somebody that Jesse Custer would kill. (laughs) He's one of the biggest pieces of fucking shit. And I was literally, like, the day of when I was wavering, when, like, uh, Decision Desk was, like, it's trending towards a more win. I was hoping that maybe there was a terminally ill guy in Alabama who would shoot him in the fucking head. (laughs) He's one of the worst pieces of shit on the national stage. uh, And has been for a while. I'm looking forward to him uh, replacing Rex Tillerson at Secretary of State. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, he's going to wear the outfit that Joe Pesci wore uh, from the antique shop. <laughs> this is my best outfit. But um, uh, hopefully this will be the last time we ever have to uh, talk about him. But uh, just uh, two things from Election Day that I thought were uh, priceless. First off, um, him showing up to vote on horseback. And he sucks dick at riding horses. <laughs> he fucking sucks. I didn't see, any, I didn't see the footage. I, I would like to... It was uh, it was quite it was very awkward looking. Yeah. Um, Do you ever see uh, that like extra thing they filmed for the end of Napoleon Dynamite where he's riding the horse? That's what it reminded me of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
He looked so uncomfortable. I, he, I tamed it myself. Also, what the fuck does it have to do with Alabama? They don't have cowboys. You know, cow, cow country, Alabama. Not a thing. Well, you know, not, so, not any more than the Midwest. No, yeah. Nobody, nobody in okay. fucking Minnesota or Wisconsin does that, and they just they have as much of a pastoral culture as fucking Alabama Sorry, does. So I'm not sure why he's coming through the woods. <laughs> hey, well, you know, when you date someone, you pick up their interests sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, number two, though, I guess it wasn't election day, but like the rally the night before. Yes. Oh, calls. my God. Ray Moore, brought out, genius. Ray Moore brought out that guy who was like one of the guys from Vietnam who wasn't Didn't planning kill to kill him. him. Yeah. But uh, like his closing argument was like, we went to a brothel with children at it and abstained from. But we let our third friend be like do uh, pedophilia. But we didn't. Which is like nailed it. That's like yeah, yeah. reminding every, just reminding you again. Uh, you know, when we all got to the polls. I can't believe that charming anecdote didn't close the deal for Roy Moore. Yeah, but they. I mean, what I'm really shocked by is Sun Tzu Machiavelli himself personally rode his warship, <laughs> which is what he calls his GNC Tacoma, <laughs> down to Alabama. And Steve Brandon himself couldn't do it. I can't believe this uh, this man whose nose looks like a fucking maraschino cherry who went to every elite institution and just decided he's a populist because he doesn't comb his hair anymore. <laughs> I can't believe he didn't bring out the voters by just standing up in front of there and going, Roy Moore, is the Le- he's going to take down the Leviathan. Anyone have any Listerine? I don't like it. He's have any of you world. read uh, Babylon's Reckoning by W. Turnip Brumbridge? <laughs> my favorite, my favorite author is this little blogger called Gaius uh, Leviathan X. He has a wonderful treatise on how Joe Scarborough is uh, the face of the institution. Like that, that actually, there was a funny moment there during the the Bannon rally where he went after Joe Scarborough. And he says, "I went, I got into." better schools than him joe scarborough went to the university of alabama the one thing the one thing that like those fucking shitheads like about joe scarborough fucking tactics genius brain master himself (laughs) brings that up you could say anything you could be like he has a drump christmas album but instead he's like yeah he went to your shitty school for (laughs) assholes steve bannon should have got out there and been like roll tide fuck that there are too many black athletes as every blood vessel in his face bursts at once (laughs) trump is so much time with this narrative of like uh you know the poor nerds getting dunked on by the jocks and like the nerds getting in charge has been a a complete disaster they've all just like now now people who would have been school shooters like run stephen miller stephen miller Yeah. yeah stephen miller could have like it's talk about wasted potential he could have been double eric and dylan superstar (laughs) (laughs) so yeah um roy moore uh a nation bids you a fond adieu wait wait one more thing once he touching the poop we're doing it after the show We'll we're gonna we'll stream it so people who are live when this is being recorded will be able to watch it. We'll also make a short film, uh, sort of in the style of Werner Herzog eats his shoe, for future viewing. Okay, the the poop will be touched after the show. Yeah, but uh, we got a reading series for you this week. But also, uh, let's turn now to our interview with uh, Matt Bernig and Ryan Cooper 
about the People's Policy Project and their latest policy proposal. P-P-P. All right. We are back. And joining us now from the People's Policy Project is Matt Brunig, returning guest, and Ryan Cooper, first-time guest. Matt, Ryan, how's it going? Going good. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, Ryan and Matt, uh, Matt, we, we, we had you on um, originally to discuss the launching of the People's Policy Project, and now you've come through with your first policy report. How it's about it f- time. Yeah. How's it feel? Uh, it feels great. You know, uh, wasn't 100% sure uh, if we'd be able to execute, but, uh, you know, uh, it was a team effort, and uh, we kind of put our heads down and then went to work and, uh, you know, did, did, just cut out the flashy stuff and stuck to the fundamentals. <laughs> both teams played fair. You know, both teams played good. None of this hip hop style policy work. Just lunch pail policy. Well, I got to say, I was a little intimidated when you guys, you know, sent me the policy report because I was anticipating it was going to be very, you know, hard to follow a lot of numbers and graphs. And, you know, I'm just a simple big city podcaster and uh you know i don't i don't i don't know, understand so many of these technical terms however it was not that at all there were graphs but overall the uh the the report was uh very succinct easy to follow and uh hard hitting stuff so congratulations guys thanks so uh let's let's dive into the report itself uh it's called foreclosed uh destruction of black wealth during the obama presidency and you begin by writing. Um, you begin. Funny, by... I didn't realize that Barack Obama was president in two thousand seven. <laughs> Checkmate. Well, I want to get into some of the, uh, the the criticisms you guys have received, and whether this entire thing you're doing is indeed a troll or not. But uh, I just want to just beginning that you write here. The Obama presidency was a disaster for middle-class wealth in the United States. Between 2007 and 2016, the average wealth of the bottom 99% decreased by $4,500. This decline was particularly concentrated among the housing wealth of African Americans. And that is basically like the, the crux of this piece. And you, sort of three sections you outline, sort of a general overview of the housing bubble and the collapse. You, you describe how this uh, affected uh, the African-American community uh, especially. And then and lastly, you outline what would have been some, a better response to the, uh, the collapse of the housing market. And I just want to take one of these, take it one at a time and begin by asking, could you just give us a general overview of the housing bubble and collapse? What inflated it and what caused it to burst? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um the the what caused the housing bubble was the development of new you know financial products on Wall Street basically after the deregulation craze in the late nineties you know you had these new uh, subprime loans that they uh, were handing out and the big uh, development was derivatives which which they could use to basically camouflage the fact that these loans were bad and were given to people who couldn't possibly repay them. The effect was to drastically increase the price of housing in a clear, you know, bubble, which then, you know, collapsed around 2006. And that was, you know, when Obama was coming into the, the presidency, that was sort of the big policy question, which is who's going to take the loss? Who's going to eat that massive hit from uh, all this decline in housing wealth? And as Matt shows in the, in the uh, figures that he, you know, calculates from the survey of consumer finances, it was homeowners who took the hit. 
and the, the the collapse in general just it, it was it basically amounted to this, a huge destruction of wealth because in most American families wealth is held in homes, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, Matt might be able to speak a little more in detail about that, but yeah, you know, basically rich people own stocks. You know, they're the people who own significant quantities of stocks. Um, the top, you know, one or two percent. And middle class and even up well into the upper middle class, their wealth is in housing. Even if you have a little 401k, your big ho- your big wealth item is, uh, you know, your home. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, quantitatively, sort of the, the middle to upper middle class tends to own around 50 to 70 percent of their wealth in their home. And once you get up into the top 10 percent, it drops to about 10 to 30%. And as you get up into the top 1% and 0.1%, it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So if you have this huge loss of housing wealth and you allocate that loss on the homeowners themselves, the net result is going to be middle-class wealth destruction. And if on the flip side, you bail out financial institutions, the upshot of that is going to be a huge spike in wealth at the top 1%, top 10%. And basically what our report shows is that's exactly what happened. The middle and upper middle class took huge losses from 2007 to 2016, whereas the top 10% uh, ended up with an, an average wealth gain of $1.2 million um, for, for the top 10 of white families. So, And, okay, so Obama comes into office, uh, like at the, you know, in the, in the middle of a financial crisis, like a, a bailout has happened and he has to administer it. As far as housing goes, their big response to the housing crisis was something called HAMP. Could you describe what that is and, in particular, why it was such a failure? Uh, Sure. So, yeah, basically when they're passing the TARP bailout, a bunch of Democrats were were so mad that that they had had this forced on them. Basically, they said, you know, the the Bush administration came and said, we're not going to have an economy if you guys don't give us, you know, a blank check to bail out the banks. And so they refused to vote for the bailout unless it had uh, some foreclosure relief. And what they got was basically a slush fund for um, uh, mortgage relief that had very little conditions on it that, and specifically mentioned that they could do principal reductions, reduction in interest rates, and other modifications. Um, and also in keeping with the fact that they had just taken over Fannie and Freddie, which have trillions in mortgage assets. And so the the Democrats were figuring that, well, Obama's going to be president. He can take care of this. And so we're going to give him extremely wide latitude for for policy. But what they ended up doing was they, instead of just like doing the modifications to loans, basically to say like people have these, you know, they're underwater on their mortgages, uh, you know, they have negative net wealth and so on and so forth and just saying, we're going to zero that out. We're going to get people back to at least like flat, you know, so that they're uh, don't owe more on their uh, mortgage than the home is worth and sort of make the banks eat the hit or at least share in the uh, losses. They had this, the thing called HAMP. And what that did was it, it, they paid the mortgage servicers. These are the people who don't own the loans. They're just like the accounts receivable department for the, um, you know, the people who, the investors who actually own the mortgage. And the, so HAMP paid them to carry out the uh, loan modifications. 
But the problem with that is that the servicers have a contrary financial incentive to keep principles high because they're paid by a percentage of the principal and also to like stick people with a lot of fees and also uh, even to foreclose because they're paid from the proceeds of a foreclosure sale before the investors. So anyway, it was just like a goofy way of even starting to do it. But when they started doing the program, these services were just blatantly abusing it. Well, that was the that was the thing that struck me uh, when I was reading the thing. I mean, I'm sure like this has been this has been covered by a lot of uh, great journalists. But like, uh, it's not just so much that Hamp was a failure, but that it actually facilitated a huge raft of outright criminal behavior and fraud. That is exactly correct. You know, the Treasury Department has all these rules about how the Hamp program was supposed to be administered. And these servicers are breaking them like crazy. And, um, you know, then they were even using the HAMP program to trick people into foreclosure to say like, oh, you got to stop paying on your mortgage so that you can get a, uh, you know, modification. People would stop and then they would pull the rug out from under them saying, we're taking your house now. I mean, and that happened many times. You described like there is this robo signing thing. You're talking about banks like Wells Fargo were paying you know, hundreds of low-level employees to commit more a massive mortgage fraud on like a daily, hourly basis, just uh, forging you know uh, post-dating documents, uh, you know, saying that they you know were testifying to the veracity of loans in which there was no document chain what for whatsoever. That's right. Yeah, Dave Dayan has this great book about this it's called Chain of Title, and this is an even separate thing because when they were during the home uh, the bubble, they had basically not filed their paperwork correctly. And so they're going to foreclose on people who stopped paying and they don't have the paperwork. And so they just forged it basically. And in maybe the majority of cases where they're foreclosing on someone is done with forged documents. And the product of that was the mortgage settlement that they got in 2012, which was, you know, I guess better than nothing, but it was so weak that just to give one example of, of how bad it was, they, it was twenty-four to $26 billion, I believe, and $12 billion of that was literally fake money. It was, it was uh, claiming credit in the settlement for money which was illegal to claim in the first place, which is to say the difference between when someone makes a short sale on a home that's underwater and the bank doesn't get all their money back, you know, so you have outstanding mortgage debt and a, and a sale below the price of that outstanding debt. There's that that remainder left. And in some states, you can't claim that once you go once you sell a house, it's gone. And they claims the banks did twelve billion dollars of that remainder, which they never could have gotten anyway. And, you know, the, the, the Treasury and Department of Justice just let them do it. It's maddening. A figure that pops up, a name that pops up again and again in in this paper as uh, a malign influence on all of this is Timothy Geithner. Could you describe uh, the role that he played in all this? Yeah, Tim, old Tim, he's a a born financial industry stooge. And he was the guy who was pushing the hardest to, to push the losses onto homeowners. And Neil Borofsky, who was the uh, inspector general of the bailout, um, he was in the room with with Geithner and Elizabeth Warren. And Warren was asking him, like, why this HAMP program is such a disaster. And 
Geithner told Warren that uh, the the point was to foam the runway for the banks. So to say that, you know, so that the banks can get back to, can land or back to, you know, normal, like financial markets, they're going to have to just crush millions of homeowners under their jumbo jet as they're coming in for a landing, basically. So that they can then have a foam party. <laughs> <laughs> so this gets like to the <laughs> we call him wet marco <laughs> well this gets to the, the the second part of your paper right like so the the, the landway is being foamed for the foam party <laughs> and we've we've talked about like you know how particularly most middle class wealth is in people's individual homes now now this gets to the second part which is why did this affect um African Americans and the black community in this country so much worse, and the, like the sort of the irony of Obama presiding over all of this as America's first black president. Yeah, so if you if you take um, black wealth and white wealth and you break it down into components, where you have home values, financial assets, and sort of other assets, black and Latino families carry much higher percentage of their wealth in their homes. So, for example, the um, sixth decile of black families carry 61% of their wealth in their home. So 61% of their net worth is home value. But when you get up into the top 10% of white families, it's only 15% of their wealth is home values. And overall, black and Latinos are much more reliant on home wealth for their net worth and whites are much less reliant on home values for their net worth. So crunching down on home values and making homeowners themselves eat those losses, instead of forcing those losses back up the chain to make banks eat them, disproportionately wrecked their wealth situation relative to whites, such that you know, 10 years on after the recession, middle and upper middle class black and Latino families their wealth is still 40% less than it was in 2007. So a decade on, they're still 40% down. Um, and for white families, it's much less. And then when you get into rich white families, they're up you know, 10 20%, which is equivalent to over a million dollars on average. Like the idea here is like that, that all of this is the result of policy decisions that were made by the Obama administration, by people like Tim Geithner, Tim Geithner, sorry, not not to be like, oh, like, you know, let's find a way to, you know, uh, destroy the wealth of black families. Although, I don't know, maybe he was thinking that. But rather, like, let's protect banks and, up, and the people in the upper income brackets from taking a loss on this massive financial crisis that they caused. And just p- passing it off onto individual homeowners and creating an effect that disproportionately, like you, as you say, destroyed the wealth of uh, so much of the black middle class. That's right. It, it wasn't a conspiracy. Uh, let's go get black and Latino homeowners, it was, you know, a probably sincerely felt belief that the best way through this was to get the finance sector back on its feet so that it can go back out loaning and investing funds. And, and, you know, the best way to do that is not to saddle it with trillions and trillions of dollars of home value losses that are going to wipe out their balance sheets. Uh, So the upshot of that then is, well, well, someone's going to have to eat those losses and I guess it's going to have to be homeowners. And then the, the net result of that decision, which, you know, is, is probably, like I said, sincerely motivated, uh, uh, you know, as, as something that's good for the country was 
this huge racial wealth redistribution and really a class redistribution as well because uh, the middle middle class of white families also uh, suffer big time. And okay, so like when you when you set up these these critiques of you know how how the HAMP program was administered or you know how the bailout shook out, like people push back on it with this idea that like well you know what could they have done you know what would you have done in their position you know like they they you know they're constrained by all of these different things. It's, I'm sure you're familiar with these. However, in your piece, you make it very clear what could have been done, not in some sort of perfect world where you know you're in charge but you you lay out like how a different path and different choices could have been made to ameliorate a lot of this uh yeah so you know the the basic model we have which was you know i'm not even sure you know maybe could have been better but was just copy pasting from the new deal which was the uh, homeowners loan corporation which is uh the idea there basically is that instead of trying to massage the private sector into doing what you want. You just go ahead and do it. And so, you know, the government had all these loans through the ownership of uh, conservatorship, rather of Fannie and Freddie, and they could have bought more. They allocated $75 billion, you know, just a good chunk of change. And so they could have just directly bought those mortgages and done the loan modifications themselves. And that's exactly what happened in uh, the 30s. And so you just would, you know, uh, get rid of the terrible subprime mortgage structure with the balloon interest payments and all that crap and just put people into low interest rate loans that are, you know, have a long repayment period. And then you uh, delete the, you know, underwater balances for people, you know, just go through your portfolio and knock everyone out, you know, who's uh, could potentially pay uh, a reduced mortgage. And it's just like underwater. And in that way, you know, the the homeowner would get something back, you know, at least back to neutral instead of underwater. And the banks uh, would have to, you know, write down the loan, which they're probably going to end up doing anyways, you know, over time. You know, simple stuff. And in fact, Hillary Clinton, of all people, was suggesting that we should do something like this in like uh uh, September of 2008 or thereabouts, you know, it was not really a radical idea at all. It's Ooh, like the, the maybe we shouldn't have assassinated her character as much as we did. Um, so like what, like what, what, what is the, 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 the mentality or like the political ideology that, that leads to going this path rather than the other, like the, the, this kind of, uh, I don't know, congenital failure to ever, I don't know, cross banks or and to means test anything. Like, what do you think accounts for this, this, this point of view among the Obama administration? You know, I think, um, you know, Obama appointed a lot of finance people to his administration. And I think that really hurt him a lot. You know, I mean, uh, presidents are very reliant on their, on their staff and for advice and ideas. And he came in and put, you know, Robert Rubin in there, Timothy Geithner in there, Larry Summers in there. And th- those individuals kind of work to constrain the universe of ideas that you consider so that even if Obama would have been inclined to do uh, a better job of it uh, or, or something else, those ideas would have never been presented to him. And Obama is not like, you know, a, a finance genius or something. That's just, you know, not his area of expertise. Um, and you saw this in other places as well. Um, when it came to the stimulus package, the the initial uh, proposal within some of his sort of lower level staff, I guess, was that the stimulus should be 
$1.8 trillion. And that went through Larry Summers, who just decided uh, this is ridiculous and impractical and insane, and no one's going to vote for that much uh, of a stimulus, and just knocked it down to $800 billion, just sort of arbitrarily. And, uh, and then that, that's how we wind up with a too small stimulus. And I think that dynamic played out again and again and again, where they just appointed these just centrist finance types and, and got what, they, what those kinds of people tend to prefer. You, you write at the end of the paper, uh, no policy obstacles stood between President Obama and sensible housing policy. On the contrary, his heavily bank-slanted policy cost the Democrats dearly. Mass foreclosure and the associated economic wreckage are undoubtedly a large part of why he was crushed in the 2010 midterms. Only deliberate choices can explain the policy disaster. So yeah, like the choices made by the Obama administration and like like you said his sort of this these bank and corporate finance heavy advisors basically set up the failure of the Dem- like it's the it set the path to right where we are now with Trump as president basically yeah you think of you know foreclosures are just wrecking the country in 2010 and in November of 2010 the unemployment rate is 10% they got blown out. You know, it's just what happened to Herbert Hoover on a smaller scale in 1932. Yeah. There's also another aspect to the the foreclosures and the evictions that also resulted from the, the crisis that I think has not, uh, people don't tend to think about. And, and that is that if, if you're pushed out of your home, you literally get pushed off the voter rolls until you get re-registered. And you're probably not, you know, motivated to get re-registered when you're in that uh, type of situation. So, it becomes a, a almost a kind of disenfranchisement to, to just push millions of people out of their home and, and therefore off the voter rolls and often people who are the kinds who are more inclined to vote for you. I, I got a question. Why y'all got to keep bringing up old shit? I mean, come on. He did the best he could. Well, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you guys uh, to close out here. Uh, are you just trolling with this pu- people's policy project? Are you trolling uh, by, you know, setting it up, uh, the destruction of black wealth under Obama to just sort of stick the knife in here? I, why, are you, could, could this be a little bit more constructive, do you think? Well, Matt, we wrote this deliberately to piss off Matt Iglesias, specifically <laughs> oh, and only no. him. Mission accomplished. Why are you trying to foster division in America? Do you have some sort of agenda <laughs> behind this? What if you guys wrote a nice policy paper that was like uh, 10 times that Obama dapped a child like a boss? <laughs> or like just one about da- the different, different pies that you like, rank the pies. He triple dapped a kid in Yemen. Yeah. You know, to be a earnest for a second, we, we did actually sit down when, we, when I was putting this out. The very first piece that I put on the People's Policy Project was an announcement of future projects, and one of them was let's see how the racial wealth gap has fared when the new Federal Reserve data comes out in a few months. And, uh, and the data came out, and I looked at it, and that prompted this, this report. So, I mean, it, it was something we were looking into already because this data only comes out every three years. And so we only had it up through 2013. We didn't know what things were like in 2016, which was the election year. That's when this new date, that's the year that this new data covers. So, you know, I mean, it, it was like sincerely motivated of, oh, we've got this new data that sheds light on, on how things were going in the last few years uh, running up to the election. Let's write a report about it. Nobody could have written this report, uh, you know, more than two or three months ago because the data didn't even exist. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Some people want to say that we're trolling, but 
it, you know, there, there is a sort of legitimate interest in, in trying to figure out what happened and, and what the full effect of that was with the latest data. The point is to say that the Great Recession was put into Obama's lap. He had to deal with it. He didn't cause the Great Recession, but it clearly fell to his administration to handle it. And so in the same way that, you know, George Bush didn't cause Hurricane Katrina, we still say that whoa, whoa, wait, know, wait, Hurricane wait, Katrina is a big stop scandal. You there. I think I think I think you'll find if you Google Harp weather machine, I think you'll find uh, he he did cause Hurricane <laughs> Hillary, no. Hillary Clinton actually did cause Katrina and Oklahoma City because uh, Vince Foster left behind clues to his own murder in both locations. So, um, you, you, any, anything that I, I didn't get to that you want to mention, Ryan and Matt? Yeah, I, I think that you know there is somewhat of a you know a bit of a trolley presentation in this, I suppose, but the. You know, the point of it is to try to get liberals and especially maybe Democratic Party elites to reckon with the fact that on, you know, in terms of improving the lives of their constituencies, uh, Obama failed horribly right here. And it's really important for, you know, if there's a Democratic president in 2020, that they not do this same thing again. And it's not just that, like, you know, Democrats have a hero worship complex about Obama that is pretty terrible, but more important than getting over that is just to say this right here, you have your slush fund to help people like at least spend all the money, which they didn't even manage to do. You know, like it's, it's a simple, simple argument at root. Matt Brunig, Ryan Cooper. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this report. And thank you for joining us. I give it an A. Thanks for having us. (laughs) And and, uh, everybody check out the People's Policy Project. We will link to that in the show info. Take it easy, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. And we're back. Thanks again to Matt and Ryan. All right. So let's uh, let's turn to um, our uh, reading series for this week, where we are visiting once again with New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks. David Brooks, a returning champ, a returning favorite. Coming back this week with, uh, I think, one of the most obnoxious things he's written in a while called What's Wrong with Radicalism? David Brooks uh, is going to diagnose the problems with radicalism. I did not read this, so... Oh, none of us have. We're so all you, waiting you guys are, to have it. You guys are fresh. To have it. You're about to be despoiled by uh, Mr. Brooks here. Shoot up no, and drop into our mouths. Like <laughs> Sorry. Ew. <laughs> now the term is deflowered. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. There was a striking moment in the focus group that consultant Frank Luntz recently held with a group of Roy Moore supporters in Alabama. One of the voters said that the women who are accusing Moore of harassment are being paid to do so. Luntz asked the group how many people thought the women are being paid. A bunch of hands shot up and voices called out that all of the women are being paid. That moment captures the radicalism of the current moment. The loss of faith in institutions the tendency to see corrupt conspiracies, the desire for total change, the belief that sometimes you've got to hire the biggest jerk available to get that change, and you've got to be willing to ignore facts to justify it. So David Brooks is saying, like, these women in Alabama were like, I don't believe them. They're being paid. They're a product of our current moment right now and not the very same people that have existed for you know decades there. That's only true in like a trivial sense, you know? Oh, well, also the idea that that refusing to believe bad things about about someone you like is 
a symptom of radicalism as opposed to sort of just the instinctive clannishness of uh, that is created by like political opposition and well, things. Well, that- friendship is the most radical idea of all. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, um, this that attitude is evident on the pro-Trump right, but also on the left. Yes, what? absolutely true. Would it surprise you to, that there's like a totally equivalent thing happening going on right now on the Man, left? It's, uh, both sides are doing it. <laughs> there's like a there's like a, a shape uh, has something to do with a horse and never mind. Moving on. <laughs> I believe that Bernie was paid to write that article in the seventies about rape fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> so you got um, <clears throat> the woke activists. The angry Sanders socialists and social justice warriors are just as certain that the Not the same people. No, David, have you been reading Twitter? (laughs) Uh, His his new bride has uh, made him tweet more often and be on Snapchat. Actually, yeah, I can't wait till she introduces him to Tumblr. That's yeah. going to be an amazing column. I actually, yeah, I can't wait till David Brooks's first column just from reading Twitter from his millennial wife's Twitter feed, where he's just like, "We need to talk about anti-black uh, NBMOC." Well, I saw David Brooks was on Meet the Press over the weekend, and he said, uh, "Quote: The Republican Party is repulsive to millennials right now." And I just think it's great that he's more in tune with the millennial culture after marrying one. Yeah. I can't wait for his article about other kin when he finds out about those. So he says, um, these people, you know, the SJ dubs are just as certain that the system is rigged, that rulers are corrupt, and that the temple has to be torn Where down. Where would they get this idea that the system is rigged? I mean, it's not like they watched uh, the global economic meltdown. It's not like David Brooks <laughs> and is then the entire government conspired in open. Uh, session to yeah. fucking <laughs> save the wealthiest that, among us is that David Brooks is being paid. Yeah, like, being paid like a lot of he's money. Being paid. I think he sold his last house for like four point six mil or something like that. He's got a lot of he's he's yeah. he's, he's he's kicked up his money real good right now. <clears throat> so he goes. Um, the moderate left is being decimated across Europe, and that will probably happen here. Woo! Ooh, inshallah! Inshallah! inshallah. <laughs> We're living in an age of radicalism. But today's radicalism is unusual. First, we have radical anger without radical policies. Uh, this is just like the product of the people David David Brooks talks to and is around in that kind of like DC world where he's like he thinks like like Vox is like radical yeah. left. Like, you know, like, so he so he goes stylistically and culturally, Trumpian populism screams, "Blow it up and drain the swamp!" But Donald Trump's actual policies are run of the mill corporatist. The left-wing radicals talk a lot about the systems of oppression and institutionalized injustice, but they are nothing like the radicals of the 30s or 60s. Presumably, if they were, David would approve. Yeah, he'd think they were awesome. Um, Wait, that's a dodge. Why are you, he's saying that uh, the left doesn't have policies, but no, he, no, he has one. I remember this. He has one thing that he points to as a policy that shows that they're not actually radical. He goes, "Today's radicals do not want to upend the meritocracy, which is creating a caste system of inherited inequality. They don't want to stop technical innovation, which is displacing millions of workers. I they, want to. Well, they, what is he talking about? They don't yes, they do. have plans to reverse individualism." which atomizes society and destroys community. A $15 minimum wage may be left-wing, but it's not Marxism. It's not even left-wing. What are you fucking talking about? 
That, that's the only fucking example he has is the $15 minimum wage in terms of left-wing policy proposals. I mean, I'd agree that a $15 minimum wage isn't very right. left-wing, but like people are organizing around it, and it is considered too left-wing for people like David Brooks to embrace. So for him, it's like like that's that's what the radicalism of today is. Well, David I, Brooks is. I mean, why do you need fifteen dollars an hour? They're already getting tipped a shiny quarter from David Brooks if the barista <laughs> smiles at him. He says, it, "Well, that, this is a, this is a classic example of yeah, just totally being disingenuous." Because yes, well, first of all, he is willingly ignoring the fact that there are all of these emerging currents that are proposing radical changes, public ownership, things like that, and he doesn't want to talk about that. So instead. So that he can, uh, you know, dismiss it, he does a straw man of, oh, they just want $15 minimum wage. But if he acknowledged the truth, he would not like that either. If they were actually proposing radical economic change or if he acknowledged that they were, he would condemn them on those rec- those um, merits as well. Right. I also think, like, you have to be obtuse at this point to ignore, like, Bernie's health care bill like that's that's intentional like removing a, a necessary uh, that's never been more popular not since like the 30s but removing a necessary service from the marketplace that's an intentional like he went with wages for a reason yeah second today's radicalism is more about identity than social problems both the Trumpian populists and the social justice warriors are more intent on denouncing the problem they hate than on addressing the concrete problems before them Consider the angry commentary you hear during a given day. How much of it is addressing a problem we face and how much of it is denouncing people we dislike? This is literally, yeah, he went on Twitter. He just <laughs> fucking went on Twitter and it's like, oh, I've got everything figured out now. These guys are all radical in an in a, in a insufficient way. And let me denounce them. I, w- I wish his girlfriend was, or his wife was following someone like Lil Pump or something. So he could just, <laughs> he could just be like... All the young people talk about now is they want to fuck iCarly. <laughs> they need lean and Zans. It must what have, about responsibility? <laughs> it must have been Christmas for all these old ass, out of touch, shitty columnists like Brooks when they learned that term, social justice warriors, and figured, oh, I can just call everything I don't like this. Anyone who criticizes me is that? That's wonderful. Third, today's radicalism assumes that war is the inherent state of things. The key influence here is Saul Alinsky. Ah, hell yeah. He's going to pull that out motherfucker. Yes. Oh, he's I'm still out the, so mad about him. The, the, but oh. is, is, he he saying, Saul, is he saying war metaphorically because we're literally perpetually at a literal <laughs> yeah, war? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Saul Alinsky was a SJW. He was a sandwich uh, <laughs> a Jew? Sandwich justice warrior. He was a sandwich <laughs> Jew uh, weedler. Yeah, he was, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ooh, I what? Now I'm not paying for this corned beef. Well, what are you talking uh, about? Ember's exactly right because war is the inherent things of, uh, is inherent to the state of things in America because we're con- we've yeah. been at war at, since at a literal we've been literal literally war. at war since 2001 and yeah. that doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Second, this was all supported in the pages of the New York Times by David Brooks. Yes. So he goes, yeah, but no, Saul Alinsky, and he says, has always been popular on the left. Wrong. Not really. Not at all. <laughs> and has recently... Yeah, a big backlash. It has be- Nobody Alinsky fucking right heard now. about him until Teacot Nutcases yeah. lost their shit about him in 2008. Well, I, I do. Well, of course. But I was in a socialist organization. But yeah, I mean, there's also, among the socialists left, a big backlash to his tactics because they have not worked 
very well. Yeah, I mean, I think delis don't have that ticket system anymore. <laughs> I, like, I, I think they don't give you extra coleslaw for free now. <laughs> I think what's going on in this article is like we see, you know, we talk a lot about the bubble that these people live in, and I think like what we're seeing here is like David Brooks is reacting to like the limits of of what he sees as like left wing policy or po- politics in this country, which is like you know about. 20 to 50 degrees to the right of anything that would even conceivably be considered left mm-hmm. because, you know, he is such a cloistered um, buffoon. <laughs> and, like, maybe he's, maybe, like I said, maybe his new wife is, like, you know, tweeting about Fight for 15, and he's like, hmm, this is interesting. Uh, but, it's, but is it radical? I don't know. It's seeking to upend uh, the rules and the way things are done. But, uh, so he goes, it is inevitably a battle between the people and the elites, the haves and the have-nots, or as his heirs would add, between whites and blacks, the Republicans and the Democrats, Islam and the West. If you're not willing to treat life as an endless war, you're a cuck. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally true, though. (laughs) Fourth, there is the low view of human nature. Today's radicals conduct themselves on the presumption that since life is a battle, moral decency is mostly a hypocritical fraud. To get anything done, the radical has to commit evil acts for good causes. The ethics what of- evil acts what is, is he, he talking, talking about? about? Calling him a bald turtle-ass bitch on Twitter? <laughs> yeah. It's evil. So he goes, and then he quotes a bunch of Alins- Alinsky who says, ethics are determined by one is losing or winning. But also ethics and morals are different. Right. Like, so that's an arbitrary use of quote. So he goes, what can we, clued- what can we conclude about the radicals? Well... They are wrong that our inter- institutions are fundamentally corrupt. Most of our actual social and economic problems are the bad byproducts of fundamentally good trends. Technological innovation has created wonders, but displaced millions of workers. <laughs> the meritocracy has unleashed talent, but widened inequality. I don't see the trade-off of is any this, of these is things. Is this a, like, a, like a defense of externalities? Like- yeah, something like that. Immigration has made America more dynamic, but has weakened national cohesion. Like he's describing oh, like the, the downsides to all these things, but the good things are just these weird buzzwords. Like it's no, the good things are he was able to sell his house for four and a half million dollars. It's unleashed talent. He says what's needed is a reform of our core institutions to address the bad byproducts, not fundamental dismantling. That sort of renewal means doing the opposite of everything the left-right radicals do. It means believing that life can be more like conversation than a war if you open by starting a conversation. Really? You're going to start a conversation with your boss where you're going to say, hey, boss, I'd like to have a conversation with you about the fact that you know I've been working here for so long and I haven't gotten a fucking uh, pay raise and you make me do uh, unpaid fucking overtime. Uh, you know how the end of that conversation is? It ends with you're fired. That's the end of your fucking conversation that you had with your boss to such fucking great... Yeah, and then the externality, that's the externality of the conversation. But the other externality of it could be that you start your own company. You, <laughs> you, or you marry David Brooks. It's an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You lose one job, you get as a research assistant on a New York Times columnist yeah. book, and then you're whisked off into a magical world yeah. of, of Italian sandwiches. I would, love, I would love to do Fifty Shades of Grey with David Brooks, but it's just like the big sexual, uh, his big sexual perversion it's leading up to is like he just keeps the closet light on once during sex. <laughs> Remember yeah, the Fifty thing about, Shades of Grey with the A. Yeah. Whenever we've <laughs> talked about David Brooks, whether it's like the uh, taking his uh, housekeeper to the sandwich shop and having her be bewildered by it, or his classic column about like we're living in the golden age of people like uh, begging out of social engagements and uh, you know lunch with friends and whatnot, 
all his columns are really he's talking about himself and his personal life. So I want to read this paragraph again in light of that. He says, it means believing that life can be more like a conversation than a war if you open by starting a conversation. I think he's addressing his ex-wife and the lawyer <laughs> in that sentence. And he goes, it means collectively focusing on problems and not divisively destroying people. <laughs> yeah. Again, read into that what you will. It means believing that love is a genuine force in human affairs and that you can be effective by appealing to the better angels of human nature. Ooh. Love was certainly a, a genuine force in his life. Yeah. There's a letter you write when you cheated on your wife. This yep. is absolutely yeah. what this is. Yep. Oh, man. Do you think he, wrote, like, he read Kevin Hart's apology? <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, you know, the GDP wants what the GDP wants. <laughs> Are you down with GP- GDP? Yeah. yeah, you know me. <laughs> Today's radicalism is fundamentally spiritual, even it's played out in the political sphere. Sphere. It's driven by the radicals' need for more secure identity, to gain respect and dignity. Or, you know, not die in a fucking gutter, maybe. Or to just have health insurance yeah. or you know, not need to fucking work some job you hate to yeah. barely get by. Uh, to give life a sense of purpose and meaning. I guess like in his, in his idea... Like- well, that's the thing. Yeah, because he's, he has no material wants in his life. He has a frictionless existence. And so he has ennui. And so for him, the, only, the paramount question is spiritual... You know, it's, always, it's always a spiritual thing because that's the only problems in his life. And so he assumes that that's true for everyone. Everyone is sitting on their back deck, staring wistfully at their fucking barbecue, wondering what it all means. He just as feels- opposed to staring at a bunch of bills and wondering how they're going to fucking stay in their house for the rest of the month. But like, if everyone could take his class at Princeton on humility, they, they could have this, this, this sense of purpose and civility and, and love in their life. You know what? Give them your money and they'll be able to do that. Last David. paragraph. The radicals are looking for meaning and purpose in the wrong way, which is uh, being mean to him, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and in the wrong... Wedging me is not going to make you feel better. <laughs> they're looking for in the wrong way and in the wrong place. And they're destroying our political world in the process. Again, reading in there, it means it's destroying my ability to be taken seriously and like have people genuflect over what an interesting mind and like turn a phrase I'm able to fart out every week. I would love it if we were actually destroying the political world we live in because the political world we live in is terrible. What yeah. what is most disturbing about like his Chicken Little act is that actually we're kind of spinning our wheels right now, and and. We're not destroying no, anything. Nothing's, yeah, nothing's like, being destroyed. We're, we're trending to another, you know, Democratic presidency, another Democratic legislative uh, majority. We're going to replay this thing back. We're going to get, yeah, Baron Trump in 2024. <laughs> we nothing's being destroyed. We're getting. No. Well, no, shit. you know what's being destroyed? His menchies. Yeah. yeah, which yeah. didn't used to happen because Twitter didn't exist, and yeah. that was a better time where people even had that, respect for our institutions even that's getting worse they're making it easier to ban people so like really we should be writing this column about how they're taking away our ability to tell people that we're going to kill them security <laughs> <laughs> so but well here, here's his last sentence he says but you've got to give them one thing they are way ahead of the rest of us they are organized self-confident aggressive and driving history the rest of us are dispersed confused and in retreat so that, that's how he closes his comments. He really thinks that like the, the political class of people that he speaks for and represents are like cowering and in defeat. No, they're not. These, like, are the guys these who beloved took- institutions yeah, are in no way close to being gutted and burned to the ground as they should. Yeah. All of this left all this right populism that came up and overwhelmed the Republican Party when Trump showed up was 
effortlessly corralled into the traditional Republican corporate agenda. And then they, they that's what they've pursued since they got the presidency. Well, not, not even just the, the Republican. I mean, like, his institution. The New York Times? The New York Times. Stronger than ever. It's stronger than ever. They're like, oh, we're the resistance. They had a huge boost in subscriptions. You're doing great. Yeah. You're making a you're you're making bank off of this shit. No, everything's fucking great for these people. Like they get to just by running their same shitty articles, they get to act like they're crusaders for truth. This fucking asshole by saying he wants the same things. I can't think Trump. of any negative repercussions for a David Brooks right now. Honestly, yeah. it, it boils Other than down like, to people are like, we don't like you. Yeah, he yeah. is more aware of criticism of him than he was in the past. Uh, and know, for him, that tur- it, we're, we're now in the fucking Yates poem because of no, that. I don't know. Maybe he is right because I don't think the left does have a policy that is going to uh, threaten David Brooks's existence as it should. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> we need David Brooks targeted policies. No, I, Take I, David I, Brooks's I house should be a plank. <laughs> no, I think that. There should be, I don't care what you are, left, right, center, independent, libertarian, I don't care. The primary plank of all human achievement and ideology should be defending David Brooks. <laughs> Protect David at all costs. They're trying to drag David. But I mean, even if you accept his premises in this piece, uh, he doesn't answer the question of why his his small band of reasonable people are being <laughs> overwhelmed. Friends. You know, maybe <laughs> the reason how? for that, or how, maybe the reason for that, if it was even happening, is the fact that your recipe for ch- challenging this massive dislocation that's destroying the lives of millions of people and threatening life on this planet is to ask rich people nicely. That was his policy proposal in that piece, was start a well, conversation. Well, no, it was also love. And I, I don't know. We could. And tr- you know what? Alimony should be settled through mediation and not in the courts. <laughs> I, they just passed a fucking tax bill that essentially turns poor and disabled people into fucking axle grease. And hang on, hang on. How was that tax bill opposed? It was opposed through uh, SJWs and, scre- and screaming and incivility. They didn't try love. And I think that you could take someone like a socialist radical like Chuck Schumer and (laughs) have him just go up to to Mitch McConnell and just look deep in his eyes and you just grab hold of that little neck waddle on either side and just just give him like a just give him like a deep, passionate kiss. Does anyone remember the Care Bears movie? Oh, yeah. Of course. Okay. They think it's going to end like that. Yeah. Where we all like hold hands and literally say we care at the same time, and then a giant rainbow comes out of our genitals, and then and and we cocky them with a love and affection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, the world we live in, and Nancy Pelosi is doing call out culture to the tax bill, <laughs> and it's Black Lives Mattering all over the social media backlash. Bernie called me a dry dick fuckboy. <laughs> yeah. Just imagine trying to sit across from a table and have a. Have a conversation with a glassy-eyed psychopath like Paul Ryan. It's like me looking into a shark's eyes and trying to like get him to not eat you I mean, in the middle of the ocean. The bottom line here is that, that David Brooks is disturbed by what he sees in politics right now on both the right and the left, and it behooves him to make an argument that they are essentially the same thing. And remember, his evidence in this piece of the same that they're the same thing is that Roy Moore supporters decide that a bunch of women who've never met each other were all coordinatedly paid by the Washington Post and the New York Times to lie about their boy trying to fuck them when they were kids and uh, liberals wanting a $15 minimum wage. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, and, and and like you know that uh, that we're now they're like, both about being fifteen uh, on, on the on the, fri- on, on the on the fringes. You know, we're we're succumbing to conspiracy theories, and because we believe everything is war now. Uh, David Brooks was a contributing editor to the Weekly Standard at the height of the Iraq War hysteria. The Weekly Standard, which published articles and a book about how Saddam was connected to Al Qaeda. Yeah. A conspiracy theory that had actual real-world consequences in the terms of the millions of lives it helped destroy. So here's the thing. David Brooks is responding to this because he doesn't actually know what the contours of, like, the left or what, what the real horizons no idea. of the left or like the socialism or he does know thing. one thing though that is correct and that is that the traditional institutions are in a state of crisis and they have no idea what they're doing but it's not like a left or even a right a far right is particularly poised we're all just like running around with you know, well, like chickens with our heads. The, mo- cut the off. most ludicrous part of this is at the end when he says, "Like we're organized and self confident." It's just like, buddy, no. I've got some news no. for you. Well, <laughs> Look who's president. We're trying. Everyone is completely incompetent. We're, we're trying, okay. But here's the thing, David. Like, you need to get out more. You need to, like, you know, get in touch with uh, people to our... Yeah, but they keep blowing him off for yeah. lunch. <laughs> Maybe further to the left than your millennial wife is, or just yeah. or, or Vox.com is. Yeah. But here's the thing, David. All of the policies that you personally have helped champion in the pages of the New York Times and in the Weekly Standard and your class at Princeton or wherever else you've slimed your way into are all awful... You're evil because of it, and it's not a bad byproduct of a good thing. It's a bad byproduct of your fucking brain. <laughs> so please stop. Just yeah. fuck off. So anyway, that's, uh, that's David Brooks for this week. Now on to the, the moment, <sighs> the, the one shining moment you've all been waiting for. Christ. Should I go get you your options? Yeah. Right, let's, let's take a look. So we're doing, we're covering this a multi, multi spectrum. Yeah, this is actually the most complicated uh, technological thing we've emphasis done. Emphasis on spectrum. This is a, this is a, this is, this is being recorded on three different platforms right now. We are pivoting to video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're pivoting to Shiza video. <laughs> we're getting a huge boost in its subscriptions Weirdly in Germany. Weirdly enough, this is our only content that isn't geo-blocked in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Germany's going to love us. Okay, so Angela Merkel herself is watching this. Right <laughs> Someone in Germany thinks it's a little too real when I talk about Commentary Magazine's masthead. <laughs> Do we have a, a poop selection? Uh, yeah, well, okay. we got to, well, I mean. Can we clear out the here, table? Yeah. Um, oh, well, boy. here we go. Okay. All right, let's get a, let's get a look coming. at it. Here we go. All right. Let's get a, let's get oh, oh, it's a good one. This is the one he picked. This is a good one. Yeah. yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, he lost here is the bag. Yeah, you should get in the there. Yeah, yeah. You want to yeah. get in there. You're going to want to get in here. Yeah. You are witnessing journalism history. We are doing the most journalism. Yeah. Yeah. You have that's very ad busters if we did that. That's true, yeah. Little we'll Banksy. Little Banksy. Got 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 ad busting. This right here, this is capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and it's a Nike logo. All right, <laughs> yeah. it is it is happening. Please, please be silent, and respectful. <laughs> oh, he, <laughs> he did a real touch on can, that. Can we, <laughs> yeah. Sit on it. All right, you the know what? Poop he's, he's has an, been he's a man Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait, 
when Mac comes out of the bath, I want to just see if, if we can get him to just maybe just hold the poop and go pew pew. <laughs> like Roy Moore. Roy Moore no, idea. We're getting yeah. the shit off of my coffee table. Could, Amber, could you hold the poop and go pew pew? <laughs> <laughs> the poop has been touched courtesy of Alabama Senator elect Doug Jones. All right, let's yeah. give him a round of applause, everybody. Hey, let's hear it. Way to go, Doug. Let's well get done, those hearts Doug. going for Matt. Have, right. Great work, Matt. Great let's work, get those everybody. hearts going for Matt and my luscious long hair. And, and, and for Will. Let's, let's get that. Great work, Matt and Will. And Phyllis. And Phyllis. Phyllis provided the shit. And Roy Moore. Good effort. Next time, buddy. <laughs> All right. I, I hope he runs for president. Um, All right, guys. Okay. So, uh, till next week. Yep. Same time, same poop channel. <laughs> yes. All right, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I got one. What did George Bush say when he met Tony Blair? Shit. Shit. Man.